night, particularly the one verse, 2 Peter 3, 8, which says, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, many people interpret that to say that the days of creation were thousands of years long, and they use this as a basis for the so-called day-age theory, which tries to correlate the six days of creation in Genesis 1 with the ages of geology. As we discussed last night, the geological age system, the geologic column based on the sedimentary rocks and the crust of the earth and their contained fossils, is the basis of evolution. In the Proterozoic era, up until about a billion years or so ago, there were no significant forms of life, supposedly, on the earth, one-celled organisms maybe, which were not preserved to any degree in the fossil record. Then in the Cambrian period, beginning about 700 million years ago, we have marine invertebrates in abundance, and then the succession of evolutionary development follows that, the Paleozoic era, meaning the era of ancient life, extending until about 200 million years ago, then the Mesozoic era, or the era of intermediate life, the age of the great dinosaurs, extending until about 70 million years ago, then the tertiary period, or the Cenozoic era, era of recent life, began about 70 million years ago and has continued up until uh, the time of the Ice Age, essentially, the end of the Ice Age, perhaps, oh, uh, 25,000 years or so ago. But uh, during the Ice Age, or even before man finally appeared, beginning about maybe 3 million years ago. And all of this record of evolutionary history is supposedly preserved for us in this geological timetable, the great ages of geology. And the day-age theory suggests that the days of creation are not to be taken literally, but figuratively representing the geological ages. There are many problems with that theory. We discussed some last night. I don't want to spend time on that tonight. I just might mention that even if one can justify the Hebrew exegesis that makes the Hebrew word yom or day mean age, and you really can't, but even if you could, it wouldn't help scientifically because there are at least 25 contradictions between the order of evolution in the geological ages and the order of creation in Genesis 1. Many of these are obvious, some of them are not so obvious. One, for example, in uh, Genesis it says that on the third day were made the, the uh, fruit trees. On the fifth day the fishes were made. But evolutionary geology has it exactly reversed. The fishes appeared a long time, hundreds of millions of years before fruit trees. That's one contradiction. There are many others. I'll say about 25 contradictions between the order in geology and the order in Genesis. So there is no correlation between the days and the ages. It doesn't help at all scientifically. So the exegesis really is not justified either. As far as this verse in Peter is concerned, he's not talking about the days of creation. You must always interpret the scripture in context. You can make the Bible mean anything you want, of course, if you take it out of context and if you interpret it. People say, well, what kind of interpretation do you follow? Well, I don't believe that the, that the way to study the Bible is to interpret it at all. Interpret it means to translate it. That's what an interpreter is, a translator. And if you translate it, you make it mean something it doesn't say. We interpret the Bible, or I should say we do not interpret the Bible. We, we take it to mean what the writer intended it to mean. That's the way to read the Bible. And in order to know that, you must study the context. Remember, a text 
without a context is a pretext. Always interpret in context. And in the context, Peter is talking about this conflict between uniformitarianism and catastrophism, as we discussed last night, or creationism and evolutionism. He says, in the last days, people will be saying that all things will continue as they were, no beginning, no end, one eternal, continuous present. But then he says, men are willfully ignorant that there was a great uh, special period of creation followed by the great flood, and furthermore, this present period is going to be terminated by a great fire, then God will create the new heavens and the new earth which will last forever. So instead of one continuous present, there are at least three great eras like that, uh, separated by the great cataclysms of the flood and the coming fire. Now, this is the context that he's talking about. And he says, as he discusses this, now remember this one thing. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, God is not uh, limited to natural phenomena and natural processes and uniform rates to accomplish his work. God has all power. He is omnipotent, and he doesn't have to take billions of years to create a universe or to evolve a man. God can speak, and it's done, and that's exactly what the Bible said he did. God can do, in other words, in one day what man, by his uniformitarian reasoning, would say would take a thousand years. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years. And so instead of taking millions of years to create the universe, God did it quickly because he can do in one day what man's uniformitarian presuppositions would imply would take a long time. And furthermore, it's not going to be long in the future either. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Just as there was no great time in history since the beginning, there would be no great time in the future before the consummation. God has a purpose for this world, and he's going to accomplish that purpose. And the only reason he hasn't already come, as we saw, is because he is long-suffering, wanting other people to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, with that context, let's look a little more critically at the so-called evidences, scientific evidences, that the earth is millions and billions of years old. What is the real evidence for this? How do men know, for example, when they go out into the field somewhere, into the mountains, they find a rock, and they come back and say, well, now, this rock is a Cambrian rock 600 million years old, or this rock is a Triassic rock uh, 150 million years old. How do they know things like that? How do people date events in Earth history? Well, now, most laymen, I suppose, that is, non-geologists, assume that geologists know how to do this some way. Somehow rocks that are old look old, and rocks that are young look young, and you can uh, work it out somehow, but it isn't all that simple. And it would help to keep this in perspective if you'd realize and remember that the only real history we have, and by that I mean things that we know took place because men were there to observe them and to record them, to write them down. That's what history is, written records. Science, science, what science is, is observation, experimentation, observation, measurement, knowledge, literally. And history is the record of past knowledge or past observations, past recordings. The written records of history only go back about 4,000 years. Whether we start with the early king lists in Egypt or in Sumeria or whatever part of the world we have early written records, they only go back 4,000, maybe 5,000 years. There's a degree of uncertainty in there. But beyond that, nobody really knows. 
because there was nobody there to record what took place. And so it's outside the scope of science or history altogether when we talk about millions of years or billions of years. Nobody has any real concept of that because nobody was there to record. And so we just are speculating. Now, how do we get these ages that are supposedly millions or billions of years old? Well, obviously, nobody was there to write it down, so you have to approach it indirectly, which means that we have to use some kind of a, of a process in the, Earth, in the Earth's uh, phenomena, and we have to make certain assumptions about that process and then apply that process to the evaluation of a certain rock formation or something, and then on the basis of those assumptions, we can come out with some kind of a measurement or an estimate or a guesstimate but obviously we don't know that those assumptions are correct. There's no way of testing them. Nobody was there to see whether they're correct or not. So we can never be sure. And if we look critically at some of these methods and the assumptions, we'll find that the assumptions not only are not capable of being proved, but they cannot be tested. They're not testable. As a matter of fact, they're not reasonable. And really, if you get right down to the core of it, they're not even possible. The assumptions are simply wrong. Now let's look a little more closely at these. Get back to the question, just how do geologists determine the age of a rock? Well, it isn't by looking at anything associated with the structure of the rock or the contents of the rock. The, the type of rock, and the obvious reason for saying that is that we can find, for example, shales and sandstones and granites and limestones and all kinds of rocks in all the geological ages. There's no difference in the structure or the texture of the rock from one age to the next. One would think that there ought to be. If one rock is 100 million years old and another one is 1 million years old, there ought to, one would think, be some kind of difference in the structure. Because if the Earth has been evolving, its processes should have been evolving, and its reactions should have been changing, and there ought to be a difference in the rocks. But there isn't any. They all look the same, no matter what age. You can find very dense and, and endurated rocks, they're quite young. You can find very loose and unconsolidated rocks that are very old. So there's nothing about the type of rock, nothing about the minerals in the rock, because you can find all kinds of minerals in rocks of all ages, nothing about the, uh, the structure of the rock. You can find folds and tilts and, and falls and earth movements of all sorts in rocks of all ages. So there's nothing about that. Now, people used to think when geology was first being developed back in the early eight, uh, 19th century, and before, that at the end of each of the major ages or periods, that there was a great worldwide uh, revolution. All the forms of life died out, and then there was a great mountain-building epoch, a great revolution, and then there were new forms of life that were created. They used to think there were multiple creations. Well, that gradually changed into, uh, into more and more of these uh, revolutions of less and less consequence, and finally you just had a continuous series, and uh, uniformitarianism came in. But uh, the, the idea that there was a significant physical break between the different ages persisted up until recent times, but no more. Let me quote from a recent article, well, not too recent, it's about 20 years old, in the Geological Society of America Bulletin. The, the authors here say the employment of unconformities as time stratigraphic boundaries should be abandoned because of the failure of unconformities as time indexes, time stratigraphic boundaries of Paleozoic and later age must be defined by faunas. Now, uh, better define some of those terms, I guess. An unconformity 
is a, a, an erosional period, a break between one formation and another. As long as you have the strata continuous, parallel strata, one on top of the other, as we discussed last night, each of these strata represent a constant set of hydraulic properties of occurring over a short period of time. Then there was a slight break, and then another stratum was formed, and, and so on. But when you come to a place where maybe there's a very distinct break and a different type of structure, maybe different uh, uh, inclination of the strata, then at the interface, that's an unconformity. The strata do not conform to each other. And so an unconformity would indicate a period of erosion, which means a period of uplift. These uh, strata were laid down originally underwater. They're sedimentary formations. They were laid down as sediments underwater. But then when they were uplifted above the water, then there was a period of erosion. And consequently, on that surface, it was truncated and smoothed, and there was a, an unconformity. When it went back, back down below again, maybe it might have been tilted in the meantime, went down below the water level again, then some more sediments could be de deposited on it, and you have another formation. Now, they used to think that there was a great unconformity all around the world. This was worked out originally, first in England and Western Europe, and then a little bit in New York. And they used to think that the boundaries which they found there would apply everywhere. And so between the, say, for example, the Cambrian period and the Ordovician period, there would be a worldwide break like that, a worldwide unconformity. But these authors, after discussing this all around the world, say that this sort of thing should be abandoned because there is no such thing as a worldwide unconformity. There's no break between the ages. And the same thing is true of the, of the fossils that are found in them, the faunas, now, they used to think, as I mentioned, that there was a, an extinction of all the forms of life in one age, and then a completely different form, set of, of life forms was created for the next age. So there was a distinct faunal difference between one age and another. But a recent paper at the International Geological Congress in Montreal, just a, about three years ago, discussed this problem in depth. And the author here says, the boundaries between eras, periods, and epochs on the geological time scale generally denote sudden and significant changes in the character of fossil remains. For example, the boundary between the Triassic and Jurassic periods of the Mesozoic era, about 180 million years ago, was supposedly marked by spontaneous appearance of new species. Researchers have sometimes come up with drastic explanations for these changes, such as an increase in mutation rates due to cosmic rays. But now, a reassessment of the data, the University of Tübingen gives a, clear picture, a clearer picture of evolution at the boundaries of the Mesozoic era. Now, these are the most important boundaries of all. This is the boundary between the Paleozoic era and the Mesozoic, and the Mesozoic era and the Cenozoic. The two most important boundaries of all is where this study was made. And at these most important of all boundaries, it says they concluded that there were no worldwide extinctions of species or spontaneous appearances of new species at the boundaries. Indeed, there was a continuous disappearance of old fauna and, and diversification of species that had appeared previously. These changes can be explained by normal evolutionary processes, he says. But the point is that there's no break, you see, from one age to another, so there's no way of distinguishing, physically speaking, where one age stops and another begins, or paleontologically speaking. Well, how do you tell the age of a rock, then? Now, some would say that you do it by radioactive dating. You measure the, you find a uranium mineral in one of the igneous intrusions in the sedimentary rocks, and you measure how much lead is there, and you take the decay rate of uranium into lead, and then you can calculate how old it is, or potassium argon dating, or some of the other radioactive minerals. 
No, that isn't the way you tell the age of a rock either. And the reason why I say that is because all of these ages, for all of the rocks all around the world, all the systems, had already been worked out long before anybody ever even heard about radioactive dating. This was all done before that. The most you can do now is maybe to get some crude check on it. And now, of course, whenever you find that the, say, the uranium lead date disagrees with the previously known date of the rock, the uranium lead date will be discarded for reasons we'll discuss in just a moment. There's so many errors that can creep into these that if they don't agree with the known date, then, of course, you throw it out. So it isn't radio, radioactive minerals that are used to date rocks. Well, how do you do it then? It isn't by virtue even of the vertical succession. Now, normally, in a sedimentary sequence, the sediments on the bottom would have been laid down first, so ought to be the oldest. And as you go towards the top, it would be younger. But that isn't even true, because there are many places where old rocks are found on top of young ones. So even the vertical succession doesn't tell you the age of a rock. Well, now, how do you determine it? You do it by fossils, of course. Fossils are the means of dating rocks. But not all fossils, because obviously you can't use all fossils. In the Cambrian period, we have, for example, starfish fossils, and there are starfish all the way through the geological column, so you can't date rocks by starfish fossils or by sponges or most other animals, because many of them appear in rocks of many different ages. So you can't use just any old fossil to tell the age of a rock. It's only certain fossils called index fossils. Index fossils. In the Cambrian, the index fossil is the trilobite, the main one. And in the Ordovician, the graptolite. And in the Mesozoic rocks, mostly the ammonites. And in the tertiary rocks, mostly the foraminifera. These are all marine organisms. And there's some others, but uh, at any rate, certain index fossils are used to date rocks. So what you do is to go out into the field, and, and when, you, when you want to know the age of a certain rock, you've got to find fossils. And you've got to find some index fossils. And then, with that, you can determine the age of a rock. But now, how do the index fossils tell you the age of a rock? How do we know that the trilobites go with the Cambrian, and so on? How do we know these index fossils really date the rocks? Now, let me read a statement from Dr. H.D. Hedberg, who at the time he wrote this was president of the Geological Society of America, so it ought to be an authoritative statement. This was in the GSA bulletin. He says that our present-day knowledge of the sequence of strata in the Earth's crust is in major part due to the evidence supplied by fossils is a truism. Merely in their role as distinctive rock constituents, fossils have furnished one of the best and most widely used means of tracing beds and correlating them. Now, of course, that's true. No one objects to that. In other words, for example, in the oil, in the oil well regions, if you have a certain oil-bearing formation, it has a certain microfossils in it, and if you drill a well or sink a boring or something, you pull up some of these, and you find the same fossil somewhere else, well, you know you hit the same formation. So it's a good way of identifying a formation. They have the same fossils throughout the region where the formation applies. But the formation doesn't go too far. So how do you go from one region to another region or from one continent to another continent to tell whether one formation is older than another formation or not? Well, he goes on and says, going far beyond this, fossils have furnished through their record of the evolution of life on this planet an amazingly effective key to the relative positioning of strata in widely separated regions and from continent to continent. So from region to region, from continent to continent, fossils do this. You can tell by the fossils which one is older. And how is that? How do fossils do that? Well, he said, if you notice, fossils have provided through their record of the evolution of life on this planet. 
the key to this. It's through their record of evolution that fossils do that. In other words, when you find fossils of animals that evolved very early, that indicates that the rock is very old. If you find fossils that evolved more recently, that proves that the rock is young. That's perfectly reasonable. That's the way to do it. That's the best way to date rocks. Obviously, evolution takes place in the same direction all over the world. So if you find fossils representing a certain stage of evolution anywhere in the world, then that dates the rock. Obviously, the way to do it, if we knew evolution were true, and if we knew evolution were true by divine revelation or some, some way we knew that evolution were true, then that would obviously be the best way to date the rocks, and that's the way it's done. But now then, how do we know that evolution is true? How do we know that? Well, let me quote a, again from Dr. Dunbar of Yale in his book, Historical Geology. We discussed this last night. He says, although the comparative study of living plants and animals may give very convincing circumstantial evidence, fossils provide the only historical documentary evidence that life has evolved from simpler to complex forms. So the reason we know evolution is true is because of the fossil record. How does the fossil record teach us that evolution is true? Well, because the fossil record shows that in very old rocks we have only simple fossils. And in younger rocks we have complex fossils, so this proves that evolution is true. Yeah, but to do that we have to be able to date these rocks. How do we date the rocks? Well, we date the rocks with the fossils we find in them. But then on what basis do we know how to do that? Well, because of evolution. Well, but how do we know evolution is true? Well, because of the fossil record. And you see, we go round and round in a great circle of reasoning. The evidence for evolution is based on the assumption of evolution. And that's fundamentally the situation. The only real evidence for evolution, the fossil record, is based on the assumption of evolution, which is used to date the rocks, which provides a fossil record, which proves evolution. Well, even that would still be all right, because all reasoning really is circular reasoning. If you get right down to it, you always start, start with certain presuppositions, and depending on your presuppositions, you're going to get certain conclusions. So there's no such thing, really, as inductive reasoning. We like to think that there is in science, but all reasoning starts with premises and goes on from there. And it's okay as long as there are no contradictions in the syllogistic chain of reasoning that builds on these assumptions, you see. But when you begin to find contradictions and fallacies and problems and difficulties based on these uh, reasonings, then you begin to question the premises. And we do find an overwhelming array of contradictions in this vast system of geological ages and the fossil record and the evolutionary system, all of which is the same thing. It's all really synonymous because each is the proof of the other. We find all kinds of contradictions. As we mentioned last night, we find many places where fossils from different ages are mixed together. And then you have to come in with another secondary assumption that says, well, they were originally separate, but then they were reworked and brought together later. Or you find old rocks on top of young ones. And then you have to assume that originally they were in the right order, but then there were great earth movements that somehow moved them and got them out of order, and so on. So we have to continually be piling up towers of, of assumptions on top of assumptions to make the data fit the original premise. And one ought to be considering the possibility of, of a different premise when you find so many contradictions in the system. Is it possible, as we discussed last night, that instead of these different rock formations representing different ages, they really all represent the same age, a continuous series of local catastrophes all connected and continuous through one great 
worldwide cataclysm, the time of the great flood. That's what the Bible teaches, of course. And is it possible that the, that the actual evidence will support this? Well, we think that the actual evidence does support this very, very effectively. We don't know all the answers, but I believe we have fewer difficulties with this model of interpreting the geological system than the evolutionary uniformitarian does. Now, we don't have near time enough for this tonight. I hope that you'll do some more reading on it. Uh, the Genesis Flood has about 100 pages on this subject, and then uh, many other books deal with it. But let me just give you an example or two to indicate the type of approach that you need to follow in, in taking a critical look at these methods for estimating geological ages. Now, remember that we don't know for sure anything beyond the beginning of written records. So anything beyond that has to be based on assumptions which cannot be tested. What assumptions have to be made, for example, in determining a uranium lead date? or a potassium argon date, or one of these others that comes out in the billions of years. Uranium decays into lead and helium, different isotopes of uranium, different isotopes of lead, and so on, usually found together. You have to kind of separate them out and make a number of rather sophisticated calculations, but assuming the, the decay rate is known, and you make accurate measurements, and so on, you can get, a, get an estimate. But now, let's look closely. Let's just take any kind of a process, and remember that there is almost an infinite number of physical processes that take place in this world. All of them obey the two laws of thermodynamics that we discussed last night. But within that constraint, there are all kinds of different processes. Each one depends on many different variables, and if any one of the variables changes in any process, then the rate of the process will change. So uh, there are all kinds of different processes and different rates. How do we know which ones to use? How come is it, for example, that the evolutionary school of thought only uses three or four such processes to any degree, uranium dating, potassium dating, rubidium dating, a few others like that. How come they use only those few when there are millions of processes they could use? Because there are that many in the world, and you see every process involves changes with time, and therefore, if we know enough about it, we could use it to, to measure time. And there are many that give young ages. Why don't we use some of those in calculating the age of a rock formation instead of only those that give old ages. Well, any of them have to make certain assumptions. For example, no matter what the process is, we have to assume that it is a closed system or an isolated system so that no matter or energy can get in or out of the thing, so that everything that takes place takes place inside the boundaries of that system. Otherwise, you see, if it's open to outside influences, some of the uranium might get uh, leached out of it. And that can happen because groundwater can leach uranium out easily. In most of its compounds, you can have easily uranium leached out, and then, of course, you'll have too little uranium for the lead there make it look much older than it is. Or some of the lead could be brought into the system. So, uh, and the same way with potassium argon or anything else, if it's not a closed system, you can't really use it. Well, you have to assume it's a closed system. But the problem with that is, in the real world, there isn't any such thing as a closed system. That's an ideal concept which we draw on a blackboard. We make a circle and say, here's a system, we're going to talk about that. But in the real world, every system is an open system. No such thing as a closed system. Either in one degree or another, it's going to be open. And certainly over billions of years, it's bound to open up sometimes. There's no way of knowing it's a closed system. It can't be. It's impossible. Well, another assumption has to be made, and that is that the process rate always stays the same. The decay rate of uranium into lead always stays the same or potassium into argon, or radiocarbon into nitrogen, and so on. How do we know that the rate stays the same? 
No way of knowing that. I know that many of the textbooks say that these radioactive decay rates don't change, but they can change, and they've been measured to change. Uh, let me just read a recent article. You see, the reason why we have not been able to change some of these rates in our laboratories is because the energies involved are so great and the scale is so small that it's just hard to deal with. But if you can imagine a situation in the past when, for example, in the Earth's atmosphere there was a great deal more cosmic radiation coming in from outside of space than there now is. And that could well have been true in the past, either because of a change in the magnetic field or a supernova out in space. There are a lot of things that could change the cosmic ray flux on the Earth's surface. And if that happened, then the flux of neutrinos, powerful particles, uncharged, which are difficult to measure but do a tremendous amount of work, these would very definitely affect the ability of, for example, in the uranium lead uh, process and the uranium nucleus, the ability of the helium atoms, the alpha particles, which is the decay process in uranium dating, to escape the potential barrier which keeps it in there. And any change in the cosmic ray flux, everyone would agree, would change and accelerate if the cosmic ray flux increased in the past, the decay rate of uranium and of other radioactive minerals would increase. Uh, th this author, Dr. Gentleman, in Industrial Research, is talking about that possibility. He says, being so close, the anisotropic neutrino flux of the superexplosion, talking about a supernova out in space, must have had the peculiar characteristic of resetting all our atomic clocks. This would knock a carbon-14, potassium argon, and uranium-lead dating measurements into a cocked hat. The age of prehistoric artifacts, the age of the Earth, and that of the universe would be thrown into doubt. So this is a serious possibility, you see, especially in view of, common, uh, of recent ideas about the, uh, the reversing of the Earth's magnetic field and more and more evidence about supernovas. This could very well have happened. As a matter of fact, as recorded a while ago, one of the explanations for the gaps in the fossil record is that there were periods of time when there were great bursts of cosmic radiation which speeded up mutations. Well, if there were great bursts of cosmic radiation, if that really happened, then this would completely change the radioactive decay rates. As far as the closed system idea was concerned, let me just read this particular article on discardant zircons. That's a uranium-bearing mineral. The common occurrence of discardant results, the common occurrence of discardant results, results that don't agree with what they should, presents an intriguing and complicated problem. It has become obvious that many mineral samples, many mineral samples used in age determinations have not been closed systems throughout their histories.
Well, there are many other problems. Uh, a very obvious one, of course, is that we don't know what the initial condition was, and that's another thing we have to know. In that uranium-lead system, how do we know that there was no lead there to start with? It's always assumed there wasn't any. How do we know that? And I mean the radiogenic isotope of lead. How do we know there wasn't any there to start with? Almost certainly there was. In fact, uh, many dates have been thrown out on that very assumption that there was some initial radiogenic lead or, or strontium or argon present. This is not an academic question. In the Creation Research Society Quarterly, about three years ago, an article was published. And by the way, the Creation Research Society, some of you may be interested in what I'm thinking about it. Let me just mention, there's a society of scientists who are creationists. We have something like 550 now in the society, all of whom are men with master's or doctor's degrees in some field of science, all of whom sign a statement of faith to the effect that they believe the Bible and believe in special creation rejecting evolution. And in one of the articles in our quarterly, uh, a British engineer examined a number of radioactive measurements made by Soviet geophysicists, mostly in Russia and Siberia, some other places. And the interesting thing about these, though, that he compiled from different sources was that all of these were made on rocks of known age. Now, if we knew what the age of these rocks wa uh, was, then, of course, this would check the, val the validity of the uranium method. But I said a while ago that we don't know any of this because this all happened so long ago. But there's some that we do know, and I'm referring to volcanic rocks. Because, you see, when volcanoes erupt, the lava flows, hardens into rock, it becomes a rock. And if the record has been made of when the eruption took place, then we know the age of that rock. It's the only, about the only kind we do know. Well, many of these have uranium minerals in them, and he found the records of these, and he found that in every case, and he had some 20-some 20, 20 of them listed in different parts of the world, in every case, all of these were rocks which had been formed within the last few hundred or few thousand years at the most, and in every case, the uranium-lead date on them was in the range of hundreds of millions or billions of years. Here we have a rock which we know is only, say, a few hundred years old. But the uranium dating calls it a billion years old. Now, what's wrong? Well, the explanation given by these geophysicists, and it's probably the correct explanation, was that when these lava rocks flowed, they came out of the mantle down below the crust where the rocks are, are, are liquid or fluid, came out, heated, flowed, crystal, uh, cooled, and so on, became rocks. But in the process of coming out of the mantle, the uranium and lead was already together, so it came out together, flowed together, cooled together. The uranium and lead were already there. The rock looked like it was a billion years old then, based on uranium and lead dating, at the time it was just formed. Well, that's probably what happened. But you see, then the question becomes not what the age of this rock is up here, but how did the uranium and lead get together down here in the mantle? That's a different question altogether, because that has to do with how the mantle was formed, what the process of creation of the mantle may have been. And that's an entirely different question. But this, uh, the, the, the point of that is that since this is true on all rocks of known age, the uranium method gives age is far too great. How do we know it isn't also true on rocks of unknown age? Because, you see, uranium minerals are always found in igneous rocks. You don't use this method in sedimentary rocks always in igneous rocks, and whether it's a granite or whatever the igneous rock was, it was formed in about the same way. There was a flow of magma from the mantle, and it cooled, became a rock. It has uranium in it. Well, it was formed the same way, and it gives the same ages as the recently formed rocks. Then how do we know that it doesn't have the same problem? Why, if we're going to use logical reasoning, we'd have to say that they're the same, and that means that all of these rocks are young. 
because they're formed in the same way, and the rocks whose ages we know are young. And you find the same problem with potassium argon dating. There were a number of lava rocks dated in the, near the, in the Hawaiian Islands by the potassium argon method. And they also had the same problem. They gave ages up to 200 million years when they were known to be 200 years old. And the answer was that some of the argon gas was trapped into the mineral at the time it was formed. Well, that's okay. Probably that's what happened. Made it look old when it was young. But if it happened in all these rocks whose ages we know, and potassium argon dating is also used nowadays, only exclusively in igneous rocks to any degree, they were formed in the same way. And then how do we know that that same problem doesn't exist there? It probably did. So that all these rocks that look like they're old probably are quite young. Well, but then what about the, the many, many other processes? All this, whenever I talk about time, I have a time problem. And there's so much else. I have a list, as I mentioned, of 76 different processes, which with the same assumptions, these uniformitarian assumptions will give a young age. Now, you have to make these assumptions because it all took place before written records, so you have to make the uniformitarian assumptions. That is a closed system, a constant rate, no uh, daughter product at the beginning, and so on, none of which assumptions can be valid. But even with those assumptions, there are many processes that with those assumptions will give a young age. Uh, for example, take the Earth's magnetic field, which is a focus of a lot of attention these days. People are talking about the magnetic field reversing and so on. Well, just take the strength of the magnetic field itself. One of the members in our society, as a matter of fact, the current president of the society, Dr. Barnes, Tom Barnes, at the University of Texas in El Paso, professor of physics there, one of the leading men in the field of electricity and magnetism, atmospheric physics. Uh, Dr. Barnes written a widely used textbook on this, done a tremendous amount of government research in this, has a number of patents. He's an outstanding man in this field. He was doing one of these research projects for the government when he was, and was studying the magnetic field of the Earth, and he found this. Going back into the, into the records, he found that the strength of the magnetic field, the magnetic moment as it's called, the strength of the field, not the direction, but the strength of the field, as it had been measured over the past 135 years, was decaying. This was a decay process. The magnetic field was decaying. Now, this has been measured for 135 years, so we have a better measurement on this particular process than just about any other, much better than any of these uranium dates or so on. Here we have a process which has been measured for 135 years, and as a matter of fact, all over the world. It's not just local, such as uranium mineral, but all over the world. It's been uh, averaged out statistically all over the world. Records have been kept. And the interesting thing was that the strength of the magnetic field is decaying, so that if you plotted it up on a, on a graph, it, it, the strength would be going down on a, on a decay curve like this at a rate of a, of a half-life of 1,400 years. That's much more rapid decay than even radiocarbon, which means 1,400 years ago, the magnetic field was only well, was twice as strong as it is now, and uh, so on. 2,800 years ago, four times as strong and 7,000 years ago, 32 times as strong. And you begin to see that as you go back in time very far, if you use this uniformitarian assumption, and of course you do have to assume that, but you have to assume that with uranium dating too, and, uh, and it's much more reasonable to assume it in a process which had been measured much longer and over a worldwide span, so, uh, and it's a worldwide process, so it, if it's reasonable in one, it's certainly reasonable in the other to use this constant rate, then you find that the magnetic field, when you go back as much as 10,000 years ago, or even less, strength of the magnetic field of the Earth would have been equal to the strength of the magnetic field of a magnetic star. 
And that's impossible because these stars have nuclear reactions to generate the magnetic field, and the Earth doesn't. Nobody really knows how the magnetic field is formed. It's almost certainly formed by a circulating electrical currents down in the Earth's core, which form the magnetic field then around these circulating currents. And if the magnetic field is decaying, then the electric currents are decaying. But what would generate the electric currents in the first place? Well, nobody knows. There are different ideas. But the only real uh, uh, experimentally confirmed idea is that the current, there, do you know that, there's, that the measured electric current in the Earth's core right now can be explained completely in terms of self-induction by the decay of the magnetic field. Decay of the, the decay of the magnetic field will generate the current. That's enough to, enough to explain it. Anyway, the electric currents are, are decaying. Now that means as you go back, these currents were stronger, and consequently the heating effect was greater. And you can, Dr. Barnes calculated, if you went back as much as, I think it was 500,000 years, that the heating effect of the magnetic field on the Earth would have been so great that the Earth would have been vaporized. So it can't be that old. And the first so-called paleomagnetic reversal is 700,000 years ago. And you see what that does to the idea of these uh, long ages of magnetic reversals and so on. Well, anyway, uh, Dr. Barnes came to the conclusion that at the very outside, based on the magnetic field process, which is the best process we have, so far as we know today, to measure the age of the Earth, it couldn't possibly be more than 10,000 years at the most in age. We mentioned radiocarbon last night. That points to about seven to 10,000 years also when it's applied on a worldwide basis, the buildup of radiocarbon in the atmosphere using the non-equilibrium model of radiocarbon. And that means that if you correct the radiocarbon dating equation, instead of using the steady state equation, you use a much better verified non-steady state equation. It's a little more complex equation, differential equation, but it can be done and has been done. Then it gives the age of the atmosphere about 7,000 years or so. And all the other radiocarbon dates ought to be recalculated in terms of this equation. They would all come down within that span. And then they all correspond very well with the biblical chronology of archaeology and so on. Well, there are many, many other such processes. You take all the different chemicals that you find in the ocean, sodium and chlorine and uranium and mercury and nickel and everything else, and you take the rate at which these chemicals are being brought into the ocean by the rivers, and all this has been measured, published in the standard literature, and in every case, all of them will indicate that the age of the ocean, even if the ocean was completely free of chemicals to start with, which of course is unreasonable, but even if it were, at the present rate of the influx of these minerals, in every case, the age of the ocean would be much less than anything like a billion years, most, some of them only a few thousand years, get all kinds of different ages because they're all based on this erroneous assumption of uniformitarianism. But you don't get any, any of them will give you anything like a billion years. And the rate at which meteoritic dust comes into the earth, and the rate at which helium escapes into the atmosphere, the rate at which continents are being eroded and sediments are being built up in the ocean and deltas are being laid down, all kinds of other physical processes around the earth will indicate the earth is quite young. None of them will give anything like a billion years. The only, only three or four that will do that. And they, we've already seen that those can easily be reinterpreted to give a young age. Now, you see, the reasonable conclusion of all this is that although we don't really know what the age of the Earth is scientifically because we can only know what took place back to the beginning of written records, yet since we have so many different processes and most of them give young ages, the probability is that the Earth is young. Now, if you have to make the uniformitarian assumption, and you do, then isn't this reasonable that in other things being equal, uniformitarianism is more likely to approach uh, being valid for a short period of time than for a long period of time. 
That is, the longer the time, the more likely there's going to be something upset that system, and uniformitarianism will become invalid. So it's more likely to be valid for a short time than for a long time, and consequently those processes that give young ages are more likely to be valid than those that give old ages. That's just as reasonable as can be, it seems to me. And then furthermore, there are many more of them, and they're better ones. It seems to me that the evidence is strongly in favor of a young earth, even apart from what the Bible says. And of course, the biblical chronology, which we find in Genesis 1, 5, and 11 particularly, indicates that the earth is several thousand years old. Everything was made in six days, up until the time of man. From the time of Adam to the flood, you add up the numbers in Genesis 5, you get about 1,600 years. From the time of the flood down to Abraham, you add those numbers up in Genesis 11, you get another three or 400 years. Might be a few little gaps there, but they couldn't be very big. Maybe several thousand years at the very most. And that's what the Bible indicates. That's what we find the weight of the evidence indicates in the physical world. Well, let me just give one other, and then I'll, I'll stop. This is a different sort of a thing, but I think maybe you'll find it interesting. At least I think it is. That's in the, in the dating of man and his society and his population in particular. Everybody's all concerned, you know, about the population explosion. We're afraid that we're going to get too many people. Only have standing room. Even calculate about 2024 A.D. or something like that to be uh, standing room only. And so everybody's trying to slow down the population growth to zero growth. Each family only have two children, so that it's a, sta a stable population. I don't think we really need to be all that concerned about it. You fly from California to Georgia, and you see that most of the land below you is empty of people. It's not the earth isn't full yet by any means. Uh, you know the first commandment God gave: be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Man hasn't done that yet. And. <laughs> It's, it's interesting that the only commandment that God ever gave that man tried to obey is that one, but <laughs> hadn't done it yet. And uh, God would be able to work it out some way, I'm sure, if, uh, if the earth if began to be overpopulated. There's quite a bit of evidence that, uh, that the population of any kind of animal or plant of, uh, levels off when, when it gets to the optimum for the, for the environment and the ecology. But anyway, apart from that, if people are so worried about the future population, what about the past population? If man's been here a million years or three million years, how come he hasn't already filled up the earth? Now, you can make a, a number of approaches to this. You can use different models. Let's just take a, a fairly simple model. Let's say that, that we start with two people. You have to do that. We'll start with two people. This will be either Mr. and Mrs. Noah right after the flood, about, say, 4,300 years ago by the Usher chronology, which is the most conservative. Or, say, if we take Mr. and Mrs. Wozenjanthropus uh, or somebody about a million years ago. So we have to start with two. Now, let's, let's assume that each family has sea boys and sea girls, two sea children. Sea stands for children. Sea boys and sea girls. Now, this is going to be a little algebra, but this is a real intelligent crowd, and I know you can uh, handle algebra all right. Uh, so now, the, in the first generation, of course, the sea boys have to marry the sea girls. The brothers and sisters have to marry. That's not the way it should be now, but that's the way it has to get started. And uh, just no way out of it. So this, in, in the original first family, first generation, the sea boys and sea girls marry, form sea families. Then they have two sea children. That makes sea times two sea or two sea squared people in the second generation. 
then they form C-squared families, they have two C-children, make two C-cubed people in the third generation, and so on. Out to the nth generation be two C to the N people. Now to get the total number of people that have been born, you add them all up, two plus two C plus two C-squared plus 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 two C to the N. That's how many people have been born, but to get the number of people that are still living, the population in other words, you subtract the number of people that have died. So uh, let's say that the average length of a, of a lifespan is X generations. That means, for example, that if each set of parents lived to see their grandchildren, they've lived two generations, X would be two. Or if they see their great-grandchildren, X is three, and so on. So now we add up the number of people out to the N minus X generation and subtract those from the people to the Nth generation and simplify it down. You get this formula that the population after N generations is equal to two divided by C minus one multiplied by C raised to the power N minus X plus one multiplied by the quantity C raised to the power X minus one. Okay? Now the formula is okay, but you, if you don't believe it, you can go home and check it, but it, it'll work out. <laughs> but now, of course, we have to know what to put in it. That's the problem. And we want to be conservative and make it as hard as we can for the population to grow rapidly, to make it as hard as we can on the Bible chronology. Many people would say, couldn't possibly be that in just 4,000 years since the flood we'd have three and a half billion people. Couldn't go that fast. So let's make it as hard as we can on the Bible. Let's assume that X is equal to 1, which means that there's no overlapping generation. Each set of parents lived to see their children, then they die. So there's no uh, overlapping generation. X is equal to 1. Let's also assume that the average length of a generation is 43 years, and that's conservative because most people have their children before they're that old. And that means that there are fewer generations. X is 43, I mean the, gener the length of a generation is 43. And the reason for assuming that is because it's been 4,300 years since the flood, and so it divides nicely, and means that there have been 100 generations since Noah, or N is equal to 100. N is equal to 100, X is equal to 1. Now you put those in the formula, but now we have to know what C is. Now you might guess what the average family size would have to be produce three and a half billion people in 4,300 years. Well, obviously it has to be more than two because if, if each family has only two children, then the population doesn't grow at all, it just stays the same. But if it were as many as three, do you know that in, with three children per family in just 4,300 years, there would be in the world today not three billion people, but three billion billion people. Can't be near as many as three children per family. Now you work it backwards, set it equal to the present population, solve for C, then you come out, with the average family size has to be 2.46, or in other words, one and a quarter boys, one and a quarter girls, is what you have to have on the average per family to give the present population in just 4,300 years, even with these very conservative assumptions. Now, the average family size today is about three and a half. It's much more. So you see, there's a big built-in factor for long periods of time when the population didn't have this average. It was much less because of wars or whatnot. And anyway, the greatest wars and famines and pestilences the world's ever seen, so far as we know, have been within the past hundred years. Population hadn't slowed down in that period of time at all. So anyway, you look at this, this is a very conservative model, and it checks all the known values of population statistics that we have. It doesn't really prove anything because nobody really knows what the population was before the time of, say, about the time of Christ. But it does fit all the facts that we do have, and that's the way you test a model anyway. Now you can test other models and all of them give about the same result unless you arbitrarily just make them stretch out. Now you can do that too, and if you make it stretch out to the time, that, to the number that you'd get uh, in, say, 16,000 generations, enough to, for man to be a million years old, 
and you let it grow just slowly enough so that it gives three and a half billion people, the population or the family size would be just slightly more than two. And even then, if you add all those people up, it turns out that the number of people that have lived and died on the earth, even at that incredibly slow rate, would have been something on the order of, of uh, 300 billion, billion people. Tremendous number. Far more, if, you, if we assume that the biblical chronology is correct, you get about 40 billion people that have lived and died since Adam. But there are much more than that, if evolution is true. And you begin to wonder if man's been on the earth anything like a million years. Why is it so hard to find human fossils? We'll discuss this a little more in the morning, you know, these missing links and so on. Why is it so hard to find human fossils? They're very, very rare. Why, well, it seems like bones ought to be piled sky high everywhere if man's been here anything like that long. Well, you can take man's societies, man's uh, uh, technology, all the other real evidences concerning man will fit very marvelously into man's origin in the Near East about 4,000 years ago, just as the Bible indicates. Well, I suggest to you that even on this most difficult of all problems, as most people think, the matter of chronology, that the real facts of science support the simple, straightforward, natural reading of what God has said in his word. And I think we'd do well to believe it. Well, I better stop, so we'll have just uh, about five minutes of questions and then have a, have a break, and then we'll see the slides of Mount Ararat. Beyond the fences, which I'm asking Dr. Morrison, Morris tonight to repeat the questions. The question was, uh, what about the uh, Apollo moon rock uh, datings? What bearing that has on this? Well, this would be uh, quite a, a little discussion in itself. Uh, let me just mention one aspect of it in particular. If you can remember back before the time of the uh, 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 moon uh, landings, there was quite a discussion in the technical literature about what they were going to find when they got there. And one of the fears that many uh, of the scientists had was that there would be a great depth of dust into which the, the uh, landing gear and so forth would just sink down and disappear. And the reason they thought that was because there's a great deal of dust that's accumulating on the Earth from space, meteoritic uh, dust, cosmic spherules of different sorts, and this rate is pretty well known. And you can calculate this as far as the Earth is concerned. If this uh, influx of dust from space was constant over the past five billion years, if that's supposed to be the age of the Earth, same rate, and it's probably more in the past because meteorites have been breaking up all the time. They're more in the past than they are now. So it ought to be at least as, as much as it is now in the past. That then there would be a layer of 54 feet all around the Earth of meteoritic dust. Well, of course, it isn't there. No sign of it at all. But there ought to be at least that much, if not more, on the moon where there's no atmosphere to, to retard it or anything. And then besides that, the breakup of the moon rocks themselves are continually, supposedly, accumulating dust under the impact of, uh, of things from space. So there ought to have been a, a great thickness of dust, but when they got there, there was only, uh, oh, less than an inch. And uh, it's interesting that once they got there, nobody's ever talked about that dust problem anymore. Nobody's ever discussed why it wasn't there. But the reason it wasn't there is because the moon isn't very old. That's why it wasn't there. Uh, some of the uh, problems that they encountered, too, in the uh, datings of these rocks, uh, they found that the uranium lead dates that they got didn't agree with the potassium and the rubidium dates in many cases. And the explanation was given by Dr. Seiler at Caltech was that the, uh, that the processes of uh, volcanism and so forth that supposedly took place on the moon in the past made, made the temperature so high that the lead volatilize, volatilize, volatilized out of the uranium minerals. So there's sort of free lead around. And then consequently it got associated back with the uranium minerals, making them look older than they should have been. 
That was his explanation. Well, of course, if you go to that kind of thing, it's not a closed system and so on, and who knows. One of the men, one of the chemists at NASA in Houston told me, I asked him this, he was a Christian, I asked him, is it true what I'd heard that on the moon rocks they were getting all kinds of different dates, all the way from zero up to hundreds of billions of years? He said, yeah, that's true. But they only picked the ones that hit about three and a half billion years because that's what they figured it ought to be. And then they knew there were so many things that could be wrong with it anyway that they knew that uh, they hadn't been closed systems and so on, so they discarded the others. But the real, I think the dust problem is uh, perhaps most significant. Another significant thing about the moon is that it was found to have a, although the chemistry was essentially the same and the minerals as the earth, the structure was so different. You remember it, it kind of uh, vibrated like a bell they found? In other words, the structure of the moon is so different from that of the earth that no longer do uh, geophysicists and scientists generally think that the moon and the earth have the same origin. Each was formed separately have a different structure, have a different beginning. Well, that's, of course, what the Bible says. It was whether there, there's evidence of advanced civilization uh, far back in the history of the earth. Well, of course, many of these uh, recent uh, books and so on that have received so much publicity have pointed to such things as the battery that you mentioned and the uh, space helmets and so on of some of these people that they find in the drawings as evidence of interplanetary astronauts from other galaxies way back, the chariots of the gods idea. Von Daniken and, and a lot of others have held that view. But of course, that's just uh, sheer speculation. There is no evidence that there's life any other place in the universe. Do you know there's not even any evidence that there's any other planet except in the solar system? The, uh, and we know that on the, on the solar system there's no life, certainly no, nothing like human life. The moon, Mars, Venus, these couldn't have life. Uh, I still hope to find some primitive form of life on Mars, maybe, but no one thinks that there's anything like human life in the, in the solar system. And the, the solar system is the only system in the universe that we know of that has planets. Now, I know that they speculate there are all kinds of planets out there because there are all kinds of stars, and if they evolved in this solar system, they probably evolved in others. But that's only the assumption of evolution. And nobody's ever seen them, and if science is what we see, nobody's ever seen the slightest evidence that there's any planet anywhere else in the universe. There are a lot of stars, but uh, maybe they're planets, maybe they're not, but there's certainly no scientific evidence of it. And if, if there are any, even if there are planets, there's no evidence that life could have come into existence out there unless it was created. If life evolved on this planet, as evolutionists believe, they would like to find evidence that it evolved out there too. That would support the idea of evolution on this planet. That was one of the main purposes of the NASA program, was to find evidence of evolution of life in other, other planets. But of course they didn't find any. But uh, they would like to, and they still speculate about it, but there's not the slightest evidence that there is. No, Of course, you, you can't prove a universal negative, and nobody knows what's out there a billion light years away and can't go out there to see. But as far as any firm evidence, there's not the slightest evidence that there's life anywhere else. And as far as the Bible is concerned, the Bible certainly doesn't mention it. The Bible says, for example, in Acts uh, 15, that God has made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. The heavens are the Lord's, the earth is he given to the children of men, says in Psalm 115. Now, there, are, there, are intelli there is intelligent life in outer space, all right. Call them angels. But uh, that's the only kind of life that we know anything about. But now, to get back to your question, a lot of these evidences that von Daniken attributes to visiting astronauts really are evidences of an advanced civilization 
way back in the early history of the earth. And more and more of that kind of evidence is coming in all the time. Man was not evolving from some ape or ape-like ancestor at all. It's stylistic in this type of music to use uh, ladies singing the tenor part an octave higher than where it's written, which actually puts it up above the melody. This tends to obscure the melody slightly, and it has become characteristic of this style of singing. Uh, this next tune is called Raymond C.M. I might explain about some of the song titles. They, it was the uh, practice of composers in the early days to name their hymn tunes or the tunes they wrote after uh, a particular town or church name that they happened to be the location in which they happened to be when they wrote the hymn. Hence names like Antioch and Raymond and Ballstown and so on. This is Raymond. <coughs> from a listening standpoint that many of these songs all begin to kind of have a sameness about them. They all sound very, very similar. <laughs> Hence, we have been, a, uh, it has been said of this type of music that it is singer's music as opposed to uh, an audience listening experience. The reason is because each part is so constructed to be equally eventful musically in other words, we all sing, have our kind of our own little melody, kind of our own little thing to do, and it makes it great fun. <laughs> 